Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they can research how non-life may evolve and simultaneously start businesses, or that receiving free Chipotle catering from your department is one of their favorite things to look forward to. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, believe it or not, we are close to our one-year anniversary of this podcast. Our first episode dropped on February 22nd, 2021. Actually, it was our first three episodes because I didn't know how to pace myself back then. To celebrate, we will hold a contest on Twitter. We will be giving away a copy of Brene Brown's latest book called Atlas of the Heart, and you better believe that it is an incredible read. More details to come on the contest, but to be ready for the details, follow us on Twitter. We are at Deeper Than Data. To sweeten the deal, we might just have a few more free books coming down the pipeline for you. Now, for today's episode, if you want an upbeat, fun person to tell you about their journey openly, to discuss their challenges and how they overcame them, or how they are still working on themselves, look no further. Let's dive right into the conversation with scientist and entrepreneur Alyssa Alyssa, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you today? I'm doing excellent. How about you? You know, I'm I'm pretty chipper too. I had a good day. It's nice and sunny and it's Friday. So I can't Woo-hoo. ask for much more than that. Yes. <laughs> but we are not here to talk about my Fridays. We're here to talk a little bit more about you. Could you give us the name and pronouns you use, please? Sure. Well, my name is Alyssa Adams. And in some circles, I'm also known as Alyssa Spooner. It's my maiden name. Um, and my pronouns are they, them, and also she, hers as well. Okay, fantastic. And if people were going to bump into you on the street today, what might you look like? I'm very tiny. Um, on camera, I look, you know, normal size, but I'm, I'm a very small person. I have short hair that is uh, most of the time colored pink, although not right now. It's like a sandy brown. Um, and I'm, I look like, I look like a small animal sometimes, like a mouse or something. <laughs> Was I making it up when we met in person that you had blue hair? Um, I did have blue hair recently, but I don't know if it was when we met last. But I did have blue hair probably about six months ago. Like I bleached the whole thing and I dyed it blue. But the first time it came out green because I didn't get all the hair color out. So then I tried again and then it was um, blue green. <laughs> so it changes, perhaps with the season or something like that. Exactly. You never know what color my hair is going to be. Aside from having multicolored hair, what other identities would you like to highlight about yourself? So I am a, I'm a daughter. Um, I'm also a uh, proud partner of a, um, a psychology professor here at UW. Um, I am a cat uh, mother to two cats and also a ferret mom to two ferrets um, and also a turtle and a fish. And don't forget the spiders. Um, and finally, for those of uh, of lis- those listeners out there who are League of Legends players, I am a uh, Teemo support main who also mains their way to platinum playing Teemo support. So it's not bad. It's actually really good. Look out. <laughs> 
I'm going to assume people know what that means. I That is lost on me, but maybe we can get to it because I know you've actually done some interesting coding to get into the world of video games too, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, actually trying to figure out like, what do I need to talk to Alyssa about was a bit challenging because there's so many different fun, interesting paths. Um, but right now, how are you connected to science and what's your position? So I'm doing my second postdoc position here at UW, um, but this one's at the Morgridge Institute. And right now I'm looking at uh, how proteins from viruses interact with proteins from the hosts that they infect. And um, this all ties into my big question of what is life and how is it different than not life? So I'm really interested in like the mechanisms of biology and, and how do they differ from the mechanisms of uh, non-living systems? So, so my background's in physics. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just sneaking into these microbiology labs and they're letting me in very graciously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm also sneaking into this whole science communication thing and we're just going to go with it. We're going to keep rolling. Um, so We'll get to where your position is right now. Could you take us back with my favorite question of who was your first crush? <laughs> so it's really funny. So I thought about this. I saw this question on the sheet and then I had to give a lot of thought to it because I had small crushes like, you know, kindergarten and first grade or whatever. But my first serious crush was in fourth grade and it was to a boy in my class named Skylar. And um, I had a crush on him all the way up until sixth grade. And then he like moved away and it was so sad. I know. <laughs> it broke my heart. Skylar, how could you? But I found him on MySpace um, later, but then I regretted finding him. <laughs> So, yeah, I, like, I know a little bit about you, but could you paint us a picture of, you know, your household, your childhood, what it was like maybe when you were first starting to get your major crush? Yeah, I have a little brother who's three years younger than me. And, you know, we were the best of friends growing up. Um, loved spending time with him. And my parents uh, were very hard workers. My dad worked at the postal service for 30 years before retiring. And my mom was a teacher uh, who started out in preschool, but then she wanted to teach high school. So she went back to college um, while I was uh, in, I think she started college when I was in elementary school or maybe middle school. And then she graduated, um, I think later when I was in high school. You know, we were really close. We we lived in a small house together. We all shared one very small bathroom. Um, and we lived in, oh, we lived up in the mountains in Southern California, um, up in Crestline. So there was woods everywhere. You know, there were wild blackberries in our backyard. You know, we had a really big yard and uh, lots of great bugs and salamanders everywhere. So it was, it was a very interesting uh, childhood. Were you outside picking those raspberries, exploring the woods pretty frequently? Yeah, we went outside quite frequently, especially in the summers. Um, summers are still my favorite season. I love summer, but the reason is because I have so many um, great memories of going to the creek. There was a creek that was nearby and there was an empty lot next door that we used to play in. Um, there were a lot of trees to climb and yeah, we were outside quite, uh, you know, quite a lot. Did you feel like you were starting to get a natural inclination towards physics or under kind of understanding how the world operates in natural laws like when you were a kid <laughs> no well i mean not through like being outside and and like 
playing with nature. Actually, a lot of like my scientific inquiry came about because of my religious upbringing. So um, in addition to being a um, very small, close family, I was also raised very religiously as well. And from like a very early age, I was uh, already thinking about things like, you know, what is, you know, what is a soul? Like, do we have souls? Like, you know, what happens after we die? You know, what's this idea of heaven? Is it like a physical place? Um, you know, just all kinds of questions, which actually really led me to think more about my current research a lot more than, uh, you know, being outside and actually being in nature itself. Like nature is great and everything, but, you know, I, um, that's, that's really where it all came from, was from thinking about religion. And did you, like, from that place, did you start reading little articles or kind of glomming on to, I'd imagine, like, when you start learning about the solar system, you get away from Earth and you realize, oh, there's huge things out there. And that's just one part of the galaxy. It's part of the universe. I used to think that, okay, well, you know, if if there is a God that's so infinite, you know, so we were, so I was raised um, Protestant. And so I thought that, okay, well, if God is infinite, then surely um, it makes sense that uh, if he were to have a creation, that would also be infinite as well. So that, that didn't necessarily plague me as much as um, actually, w- like when I was about six years old, we had a, I had a kitten who went outside and, and died. Um, it was really sad. and I was really heartbroken about it. But my grandma, I remember her sitting me down and telling me that, oh, don't worry, your cat is up in heaven. And she pointed up to the ceiling. And all I could think about was like was a cat skeleton in the ceiling. And I was like, oh my God, like why? <laughs> and and then I was like right there. And she's like, yeah, he, you know, your cat's up there with Jesus. And then I imagined Jesus' skeleton being in the ceiling. And I just for like whatever reason couldn't get that out of my head. And then I asked, I was like, why are they in the ceiling? And and you know, my grandma realized that I was thinking about it very literally. And she's like, no, 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 like past, past, like up in the sky. And so I interpreted that as as being in space. And so like when, when I was like six, my idea of heaven was like skeletons floating around in space. And I thought, there's no way that can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I thought I was like, why, you know, how, uh, you know, what's a better way to think about this? And like, is that really what people are thinking? And, you know, they got me on this like really long train of thinking about like, you know, okay, what is a soul? What's going to stay after we die? Um, if anything stays after we die um, in terms of what we understand as a soul and, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Especially like this idea of like, you know, eternal, right? You know, eternal happiness. Like that was even something that really um, struck me as being um, an interesting question because, you know, the reason we understand happiness today is because we're able to contrast it with things like sadness and anger and upsetness. Um, so thinking about only happiness was also confusing to me. I, I feel like that's really it has some interesting parallels to like your current research now and what you're interested in. Although you're not necessarily delving into souls, you are determining what could be alive and what's not. So it's still a huge existential question. Perhaps one science can answer, but it's also a huge gray area. Yeah, especially when you think of things like not just what is what counts as life versus not life, but what counts as alive versus not alive, right? I always like to think of um, if a million years go by and you have these, uh, uh, you know, 
what, what do they call them? People who are like digging in the dirt or whatever, and they like archaeologists. Yeah, those things. <laughs> <laughs> those people, things, people. Yeah, archaeologists uh, uh, digging up all these cars. You know, would they think that they were part of life? Well, surely they're a part of a living system, but they're not alive. Think same same with viruses and stuff like that. So you know, thinking about a soul. Um, for me was really thinking about is there a essence to me as an individual that can be translated outside my physical like body and when when I was thinking about it that back then I was thinking about my body as a vessel and I'm occupying it as a soul but you know now when I'm thinking about it I'm thinking oh I'm a body that uses the idea of a soul because it's handy and it helps me be able to navigate through particular situations so, yeah, it was a lot of like really deep questions growing up. So I'm imagining this is probably not the regular conversation you're having with like friends at the time. Um, these deep like existential questions. But yeah, who was Alyssa during middle school and high school? Oh, man. Oh, poor Alyssa. <laughs> poor Alyssa was just so sad. Middle school was rough. Oh, it was it was really, really tough because, um, you know, par- partially because, you know, I, I had a really hard time relating to kids my age um, because, you know, my home life was so different than their home life. And I just didn't know what most kids were into because, you know, they were really into things like Pokemon and Harry Potter. But that's something that wasn't a part of um, my household. So it was like, ah, relating was really difficult. And then so when they put it, so I I grew up with the same amount of uh, the the same group of kids all throughout elementary school. And then here comes middle school. And then all these new kids from all these other different elementary schools are introduced. And I just had like no idea what was going on. So I was like really depressed and really sad and really isolated. But I did make some friends. And I did actually meet my best friend in middle school, um, who we're still best friends today, which is really fun. But um, throughout middle school and high school, um, pretty much the only thing I did was draw comics. <laughs> and I still, so it was like a really thick binder, like two or three inches worth of comics that I used to draw for my friends. And that's, um, that's pretty much what I did. Were you and your friends like the main characters of the comics? We were, yeah, and uh, we used to, I used to make up stories about, you know, just like mythical things that could happen in the school, and some me- kids were who were mean to us also became characters uh, as like the bad guys, you know, and we would have our stupid adventures, like we would have like superpowers, or maybe we'd sneak around and it turns out one of the teachers, like the mean substitute was actually like, ah, she's a monster or something. And looking back, it's like, it's like pretty mean, but you know, like as a kid who wasn't really like sure how to address things on you know, directly, emotionally, I think it was, it ended up being uh, a very nice channel to, you know, (laughs) talk and express myself. That's a pretty safe outlet. Yeah, yeah. And you're still building skills. Like, I believe on your personal website, like, you still have sketches and drawings that you've done, correct? Yeah, I still do some drawing and I still enjoy art. Like I like pastels a lot and I still draw the same, like when I'm drawing like with pen and paper, I still draw the same style of like stick figures just because I think it's hilarious. But I love comics. uh, And um, at one point I really considered being a web comic artist and that's still something I like to throw around in my head, but I don't have time for it. So, you know, it's not going to (laughs) happen. Did you start um, coding in high school or is that something later? Because you also, okay, you've done some coding in your past as well. 
So then, yeah, how did you jump from high school to going into physics in undergrad? So like in high school, it was, you know, everything was like, I just didn't have any interest in doing academic things. I, I was like the kid who was like, oh my God, the assignment's due. I better do it five minutes before it's due every single day. I never took home homework. I always did it like in a class where, you know, we were supposed to be doing something else. So it was my last year in high school and um, I had an extra science class that I needed to take. And it was like a science elective. And I was like, okay, what do I want to take? Well, I don't want to take any of the AP classes because they give you extra homework and I wasn't interested in that. So um, I decided to, you know what? Hey, I'll take this physics class. Why not? It sounds, it sounds like fun. And physics was, uh, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, don't take that class. It's so hard. Like it's the hardest class. But I took it and it was actually the easiest science class I had taken up until that point. I was like, oh my God, everything makes sense. Everything was, to me, like it was really simple and you can just use this uh, formula and, you know, put these numbers in and just trust that the, you know, these relation, these mathematical relationships work. And then the answer will come out on the other side. And I found that just absolutely fascinating. But, but at the end, um, at the end of that class, you know, I, I didn't think much of it other than like, oh, shoot, I'm so glad that that was actually an interesting class. And, and I really enjoyed it. But my, like during the yearbook signing, my physics teacher wrote, um, it, or I don't remember if he wrote it to me or if he said it to me, but he said that if I really wanted to become a physicist, that I would make a really good one. And that actually really shocked me because I didn't think I was like any good at it. Like it just, I didn't see myself as being good at it. Um, but I felt really, it, it made me feel really happy that, that he, he thought that because um, that encouraged me to declare physics as a major my sophomore year in college. Yeah, around that time too, sophomore year of college or undergrad for me, I was taking all these different science classes and I was enjoying it, but I didn't think like, oh, this is going to be a career until someone pulled me aside and was like, hey, in a plant biology course, was like, you're pretty good at doing all these phylogenies and identifying plants. It's like, you should think about this. And I was like, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just assumed job, whatever job meant and then graduate to an undergrad and not, you know, I didn't know about grad school. I didn't know about postdocs or anything like that. So those small little moments of pulling people aside can be extremely significant. For sure. And, and I'm like really thankful for him doing that. And he's just absolutely fantastic. But, but I also have to like, you know, give a really big shout out to, so like, I, I also, um, I was being a little bit unfair when I said I didn't care about any of my other classes. There was two other classes I actually did care about. Um, that's my anatomy and physiology class. Um, my teacher was amazing. She taught us a lot about biology and that's where a lot of my love of biology came from was my biology. So, so she and the physics teacher would constantly like talk and, you know, they would go back and forth about which science was like better and which one was more interesting. And I loved it. And I, you know, I still think about the conversations today um, and still have them with my uh, imaginary versions of myself in my own head. So, so yeah. Um, and then also the other class that I really loved was AV as well. I loved AV. So, Alyssa, where do you stand on biology versus physics? Oh, boy. Well, I, you know, I still argue with myself all the time. What's more interesting? And it's funny because I think the most interesting part about biology is the physics, the um, unmapped physics. And the most interesting part about physics is unmapped biology. So I think the most interesting thing is about how they enter uh 
I don't know, like how they interconnect and how they relate to each other is is where the interest is. <laughs> safe answer, safe answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, I would agree with that, totally. Yeah, did you have more mentors in your undergrad career to keep launching you forward into graduate school? Yeah, I also... Well, undergrad was was really, really tough for me. So like, you know, middle school was and high school were difficult, but like undergraduate, I think, was the most difficult time in my life because I uh, had moved to another state by myself and I was like 100 percent on my own. Like I didn't know any people there. Um, You know, I, I had some family, but they were kind of far and, you know, just expectations didn't meet up with reality um in many ways that that way but i didn't know any friends there um and also like going from california to eastern tennessee was a big culture shock like really big so it was really really hard but i did have a couple of mentors that were really helpful particularly the professors in the physics program and the professors in the honors college were very very supportive and they were really they went above and beyond uh, reaching out and helping me and guiding me with along every step, even when I wanted to quit. Like, I remember one time I like burst through the door and was like, I'm going to quit. <laughs> you know, and they were still really supportive and kind. So it was very nice of them. <laughs> yeah. We're, I'm, I'm curious about the time that you wanted to quit. Was it just because everything that was kind of piling up with stress in, in college? Yeah. Things were piling up in stress. Um, and I, was so frustrated with, I guess, like, honestly, the classes were really hard too, because I'm, I'm, I struggle a lot with doing problem sets. Um, like I have a, they have a, have a really hard time keeping my attention and sitting still and like actually doing them and like going to the same class every time is it's just so hard. I love learning, but I can't do problem sets. Ooh. So, and then I thought like, I felt really, I felt like I was betrayed because I thought science was going to be like really interesting and about discovery, but all, all it is so far was just like do these 50 problems. And I was just like so fed up with it and I was so angry. So I wanted to complain that like, I thought science was going to be creative and fun, but it's not, it's the opposite. <laughs> and it really does feel like that when you're at that stage, but you know, you just got to move past it because I'm so glad I moved past it because boy, it's, it's the most creative thing that I've ever done. So that's, that's great. But yeah, it was like, it was a combination of the stress, but, but, you know, also my home life was really bad too. Um, you know, like I was, uh, struggling with like housing and, uh, eating, um, especially because you know, I, had, I don't have any money and I got, uh, caught up in a really bad relationship as well. And, you know, having to deal with that. So, uh, yeah. Oof. Shoo. I'm so glad that's behind me. <laughs> well, I do appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of times in undergraduate or in grad school, there is housing insecurity and food insecurity that isn't mentioned. Um, and unfortunately, like people know of food assistance, food stamps, uh, SNAP benefits. Those aren't always eligible or options for students because they have this weird rule about it. Um, and, you know, fortunately, a lot of campuses will try to help out, but it's it's a real threat um, that isn't discussed. So for listeners and for us to, to keep in mind, people are struggling out there. Yeah, it's true. It's it's definitely true. And um, I'm always I'm always really aware of campuses that actually pay attention to those needs and have programs. And if you uh, I know UW has really great um, 
student food programs. But um, so if you're aware of them, please support them because they're very helpful. Right. And people can volunteer, they can contribute. And UW also has really great programs where they will take extra food from cafeterias and turn those into meals for people to give for free too. So shout out to UW for doing that. You were mentioning before the transition from doing problem sets to actually doing the real science, which sounds like grad school may have been a great outlet for you. How did you transition from like undergrad to grad school? And did you go directly from undergrad to grad school as well? Yeah, yeah, I did. And a lot of the transition happened, um, like actually the only reason the transition happened was because um, professors were really, at, at my undergrad institution, were really into um, getting students involved in research. And it was actually a really good opportunity and a really good place for it because like the faculty to physics major student ratio was uh, quite quite good because there wasn't a lot of people enrolled in physics. So we got a lot of like one-on-one -on -one time with professors who were like, hey, why don't you play around with this software and then we'll like create a model with it. Oh yeah, I did lie. I lied. Oh my gosh. Oh no, I lied. I did work on some coding when I was uh -oh. an undergrad. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot. Well, I asked in high was... school, so you're safe. Oh, oh, well, you asked in high school. Oh, okay. Well then I'm, yeah, that's totally fine then. <laughs> yeah. No lying, no lying, no lying. <laughs> so I was, I loved research. I thought it was so much fun. And I started doing research when I was a uh, sophomore in undergrad. And I did it all the way up until I graduated. And I did a, through the honors college, I did a an honors thesis uh, with one of the professors looking at variable stars. I don't do any more astronomy, but I, it was, so I, I learned about how interesting research can be uh, doing astronomy. So yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, well, I want to do, I want to do more research, but only research going into grad school. So, so I was really gung ho about doing it, but I didn't, I, I was very safe in my grad school applications. I didn't even bother applying to places like, you know, like Brown or MIT or yeah, like I didn't even bother because, you know, like the applications are expensive and I was like, okay, I'm just going to do things that are just really reasonable. And so like my top choice was actually Case Western University, which I got into but then I ended up rejecting because my second choice, Arizona State University, when I went to go visit the campus, I was blown away and talked to the professors. I couldn't believe how big their program was and how much money they got and how much like interest and how much investment that they had in research and not just any research like innovative, crazy research, like cross-disciplinary. They're not necessarily about like, oh, you study this discipline. They're like, no, we study questions here. And I was like, okay, let's Ooh. do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was really exciting. <laughs> Neat. And so while you're in grad school, I, I know for you mentoring undergraduates, and I can't remember if, you, you're, if you're involved with high schoolers at all, but that idea of mentoring and bringing the next generation into science is extremely important to you. Did you start to see like the benefits of that in graduate school by doing it like you're on the receiving end, but this is maybe one of the opportunities you get to actually start helping others grow. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I was really heavily involved in, in outreach. I probably spent like 
a third of my time in grad school with outreach. I loved working with a program called um, Sundial, and it was a program sponsored by the physics department to act as a mentoring and bridge program for incoming undergraduates. And I, I just loved it because I, I just thought like, you know, nobody should feel like they're alone and unsupported uh, in college, especially when they're doing something that's really hard like science, because, you know, you know, these, I, I always thought like, okay, these freshmen are coming in and they don't know about the hard problem sets that are coming, <laughs> but they're definitely coming. <laughs> and I want to make sure that they have a really strong support system for when they hit those walls of like, wow, this, this curriculum, or like this, this curriculum really is really hard to get through. So yeah, I was really passionate about it. And, and I feel uh, so good about it looking back about, um, you know, helping to build these programs and hopefully, you know, hopefully making um, people's lives easier when they study science. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's really fulfilling, even on my end. And I'm, I would guess like on your receiving end, you being able to be that connection for, from someone who maybe was not so connected. I mean, like maybe you felt the difference immediately. Yeah, it, it was, it was something that felt like, you know, I'm not just being upset about my past experience. I'm doing something to address it. So rather than like being, uh, you know, like just really sad and, you know, being like, oh my gosh, my undergrad experience was so terrible. I wish I went to wherever where they had fun and had parties or whatever. It was more like, uh, you know what? <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know. If, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Oh, please. Okay. I was like, you know what? Fuck that shit. I was like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to help and we're going to build a community together right now. And it was just like, and, but having that community right there was like, look, see, we can build a community together. We can make something that's awesome right now. And it, it like paid off immediately, which was, which was just so awesome to see. Yeah. Did you try to start making those connections by bringing commonalities to like the kids who were coming to college with a mix of like being your authentic self? Mm, it was really hard for me to bring my authentic self for a long time. And I think the reason why was because I was just so, I was, I was always really worried that um, people wouldn't, I don't know, like me or accept me for who I was. But I felt that when I was in these spaces, I, these were the first times I was actually able to step into these spaces and bring myself in because everybody else, like, I, I really felt strongly that to have a community that's supportive, you have to have a place where people feel comfortable bringing their entire selves into. And while I, you know, I saw other people around me doing that and I'm helping to build this space, I felt like, okay, well, maybe I can, maybe I can step in and, and do that as well. So I started to step, step in and I made some really meaningful friendships and uh, had some extremely meaningful conversations. And um, yeah, and that's where I started to see those connections starting to, to practice them. And it took me like several years, probably up until like two years ago to finally feel like I can fully bring my full self into my working spaces. But um, it was a really great place to learn how to start learning how to do that. You know, I'm with you, like maybe until the past year and a half felt like there was something missing in what I was explaining to other people. For me, a lot of the times it was like humor. I, although I loved and would say jokes in my head to other people's uh, answers, I didn't always feel the most confident in saying that because you don't, you don't know necessarily your audience, but I think that's been you know, my, my project is a podcast and it's been really helpful to, I can throw it out there, 
And for listeners, I'm not like covering up the bad jokes that don't land either. <laughs> so, but most of the time, it does work out. And I'm glad you got to that that point as well. So I'm I'm also wondering like you're you're doing outreach, you're building community, you're also actually doing the research in graduate school. Is this the time when you started doing some coding and turning that coding into video game? I guess I, I don't even know the right word for it, just implementation, maybe? I was reading your work and I was like, I don't really understand exactly what this means. Let me just ask. Sure. Yeah. Um well, okay, so I'll start with the coding. Um, the coding, yeah, like I uh, was, I fell in love with research. Like my, my research question was just like, all of a sudden, my whole meaning of life, my whole meaning of existence. I was like, I love this research. It's so great. And it, it required a fairly heavy amount of coding. And I had like very little experience with coding. Like the only coding I did was as an undergrad, where I basically ran and changed a very small amount of parameters from some code that um, my professor gave me. So I was like, okay, now I have to build things from scratch and actually like write a little script that does a thing. So I started in Mathematica, which is a really great place to start for coding beginners because it has really nice documentation and autocomplete and all sorts of fun stuff like that. So I started that. And I, I, once I got comfortable with that, I decided, okay, well, maybe I should port over and learn something that's more transferable, like Python. So then I started learning things in Python, and I just forced myself to try Python with everything. And that's actually where the video game thing came in. So um, I was really interested in this question of open-endedness, and um, which is this idea of biology that um, biology is constantly changing over time, so evolving in a way such that it's always making new things and it's never repeating itself exactly, and it's always being innovative. Non-biological systems don't evolve open-endedly. I recognize League of Legends as an example of open-ended evolution in its strategy selection. So like the number of particular strategies that um, players are allowed to choose from, that set evolves and changes over time. It's never repeating itself and it's constantly evolving and players are always coming up with new and innovative ideas. So I was like, okay, so I have to do this thing in Python. Um, so I uh, uh, learned what an API was and then I learned how to connect with it on Python and then download the data, process the data through Python. And then all of a sudden I had a working Python project um, analyzing video game data um, specifically in League of Legends. So it was a quite quite a, a steep climb, <laughs> but it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. Did that uh, count as some of your research to check the box to get you out of grad school too? For, for coding? Because it eventually led to a publication, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So it, it definitely led to, yeah. So one of the big things in my committee um, that like a big comment that really stuck out to me was, hey, Alyssa, your models are really interesting, but what about real data? And I was like, uh, what about real data? I'm, I'm a theorist. Like, and then I was like, God damn it, I actually have to think about real data. So, so that, was, that was a really nice way of checking off that box of like, okay, now I'm working with some real data and I can test some assumptions in a way that a scientist would. <laughs> so it was, it was good. Yeah, my real data is video games. There's there's nothing more real in the world than video games. Exactly. <laughs> what was your next step after graduate school? 
I wasn't sure what my next step was going to be, um, especially because I was thinking about graduation around the 2016 election. And I felt a really big push personally to make some big changes in the world. Cause, I mean, you know, I think everybody feels this way at, at some point. It's like, oh, my gosh, the world is terrible. We should do something. I should build something. And I was really feeling that. But then when I thought about my research, I was like, well, shoot. I mean, I look at like theories, which is really awesome and super important. But I'm also a little I was a little bit worried that I wasn't going to make an impact directly enough. And then I was thinking that, well, maybe the tenure track isn't for me because, well, you know, I really enjoy research. Um, I also want to be building things rather than teaching classes. So I actually decided to go into industry. Just I took like a uh, just. I don't know, like a detour or uh, it's not really a detour. It's just it's just an, a, a less common um, path. And I was like, OK, so I went into I applied to all these different internships. I did an internship at Microsoft Research and I loved it. It was really interesting. I learned a lot of stuff. And then that opportunity led me to work as a data scientist at a, star at a startup in Madison for two years, which is how I moved to, to Madison, actually. And I loved it. And I learned so, so much. And um I learned, you know, I learned a lot of coding, a lot, I learned a lot of um, really cool uh, tips and tricks and how to work with a lot of data and how to understand um, machine learning applications in an industrial setting. But after I, you know, after I learned a lot of these skills, I, I kept thinking about my research again. And I was like, oh, okay, like, I, okay, now I'm building things. I'm learning how to build stuff. I'm learning how to build software. I'm learning how to, I'm learning about startups. I'm learning about companies. But what about this research again? So then I decided to go back into science, um, and back into academia. And then, you know, it's going back and forth and back and forth. So, so eventually I learned that, okay, I like doing research, but um, I didn't really, and, and I like building things. But, you know, when I was a grad student, that's pretty much all as far as I got was <laughs> I like research and I like building things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, now that you, you're like done some postdoc, you have some job experience, you still like building things. You still like the research and. And that's great. So I'm going to do those things. <laughs> so, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, so, so now I have like one foot in academia and one foot in, in industry like I have um, pretty much since I did, was doing my internship in grad school. Um, it, honestly, like not much has changed, except now I'm just really comfortable in this space. Um, like I, after my postdoc fellowships, uh, at, well, current fellowship ends, I plan on being an independent researcher, still working on the same things. Um, but I also plan on uh, working on my startups and just continuing to build things and earning an income that way. So like I, that way I feel like I can freely do science and research without having to worry about um, being funded by a grant or a university or something. And I can just work with whoever and study whatever, whenever I want. So <laughs> yeah, I like that approach too, because I think oftentimes in science, like in my experience was you might be interested in lots of different things, all different subjects. Uh, you start thinking about graduate school, you have to go to one subject area. Within that subject area, your research is one sliver of the subject area. And then you become the content expert in that realm, which is good, but I feel like it can be really stifling in ideas sometimes. And also, perhaps you feel the same the same way. I just view myself as a generalist. Like I'm going to be pretty good at lots of different things, but I'm just not going to be like the expert in one area. But it's good that I'm a generalist because then I can chit chat with scientists 
and also have the public understand or jump in and out of different subject areas and bring some ideas from one realm to the other. Totally. And especially like with the questions that I study, it was like, you know, what makes living systems different than non-living systems? Um, I'm just, I'm constantly going between fields of, uh, you know, physics is where I came from, but also, you know, obviously biology, uh, especially microbiology, um, proteins. So, you know, like um, bioinformatics and um, things like that. And then also thinking about um, theory of computation. So thinking about um, the computer science theory but also thinking about thermodynamics and um, chemistry as well. So, um, and, and especially, actually psychology has a lot of really awesome literature on this topic as well. So um, I think being a generalist is, is really, really important skill for going between subjects. You know, even if, you know, like, even if you only do research, it's still good to be a generalist, to be able to talk to people who study the same question in a different field. So it's interesting. Yeah. And in your work too, now that you're thinking, you know, what, could be defined as alive and what isn't. Um, actually, when I was researching you, you in a, a lecture mentioned um, that we all know rocks aren't alive. So it's just going to follow up and make sure, are they? <laughs> Do we all I'm, know that, Alyssa? <laughs> well, you know, I haven't met every rock, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Um but this is my interesting segue to be like, do, do, have you found um, a cutoff point or do you think there would ever be a cutoff point of what could be alive and what isn't? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely think so. I, so um, I, in my personal opinion, um, <laughs> I think that there's uh, life does a really interesting thing that not life doesn't do. And what life does is it's constantly, um, you know, uh, we, we think of it and you can think of it in terms of open-ended evolution of always coming up with new um, uh, innovative states and new innovative tools and things like that. But I'm also thinking about it in terms of um, state spaces as well. So, so, uh, so, so to unpack that a little bit, a state space is a way that we describe the world. Um, and people are really, really good at coming up with new state spaces all the time. So uh, we come up with new descriptions of the world, but also as we invent new technology, with every new piece of technology comes along with it a new state space. And so, so we can think about um, like, uh, for example, the smartphone. Um, uh, when we invented smartphones, uh, we also invented the state space of apps and then also the state space of uh, communicating over 5G and all sorts of stuff like that. But biology does this all the way down to like a protein level. So when you have a protein, that protein is going to operate in a particular state space. And depending on that shape of the protein and the kind of context where that protein is living in, um, it can uh, operate in you know uh, a large variety of different kinds of state spaces. So, so uh, going back to it, I think the the line actually lies within: Does the system is it creating new state spaces or is it not creating new state spaces? But that's so that that's that's just my ridiculous rambling about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure people are like, okay, um, that is an answer. I don't know if I can apply that in real life and tell, <laughs> tell my friends exactly what I learned. I mean, I, it's not that I disagree, but it is kind of more a, it's an, I don't know if it would be an existential answer to an existential question, um, but it's, it's not something concrete and hard fast that new states exist. But 
yeah, us humans, we always want our solid zero one answers. Um, and this one just might not be ever really answered but, again. But I will be working on it next year, though. Um, so okay. like, I, so by yeah. next year, you'll have the answer of what is living and what is not. No, <laughs> but <laughs> but I'll have but I'll be able to I'll be able to inch my answer something about this far towards um something that is a little bit more concrete <laughs> yeah okay i'll check in with you i'm actually i have a, a a date almost i think about four and a half years at this point to check in with your boss i interviewed your your boss karthik towards the end of the interview i asked him like since he deals with sulfur metabolism are my farts killing me since that's a smelly part of of, of farts and he said check in with me in five years so i have not forgotten <laughs> <laughs> i'm letting that clock wind down but i am definitely going to check back in with him you just write him an email subject line <laughs> I'm still i still farting. need to know <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly Changing gears almost completely, uh, you and I have also chatted about different business ventures. Of course, this this podcast somewhat unintentionally became a business. You mentioned you enjoyed being at the intersection of science and entrepreneurship. What are you working on now? So that's very exciting um, to ask me today because we just launched... <laughs> We had a launch uh, of of one of the companies I'm working on. Um, so we are Profound, and that's Profound spelled with a PH because it's like PhD. Um, and basically, what we are is we are a team who realize that there's a really big gap between um, people with PhDs or master's degrees and postdocs um, who. Uh, want to find jobs, but also the availability and ability to be able to get those jobs. So companies also have a hard time finding people with PhDs because a lot of them aren't on LinkedIn or anything like that. And plus, a lot of um, companies rely on things like career fairs, which are actually mostly designed for undergraduates. And the universities, while some universities have really good programs to teach um, grad students how to get jobs that aren't within academia, um, they aren't necessarily scaled across departments or universities. So either you get really lucky in a department where you have resources to help you find a career that's outside of academia, or you're like 90% of the other grad students who don't have access to that. So what we do is we are providing a platform and services where we want to connect with um, PhDs while they're doing their programs to um, hone in on what skills should they be working on right then um, in order to land and explore, well, to explore different jobs um, and uh, how to land those jobs. And so we want to um, also uh, work with uh, companies and organizations to um, find these PhDs better. So imagine LinkedIn, um, but for specifically for, for grad students, um, but, but also with the added ability of having a fleet of career, um, uh, uh, career advisors helping you along every step of the way. Right. And I, I enjoy that because I've, I've, you know, I'm graduating, I'm looking, I'm in the path of trying to find careers 
and LinkedIn is helpful, but sometimes it's it's too much. If you're trying to sort through 40,000 jobs that you could potentially be eligible for, it'd be nice to have 1,000 that you're almost certainly uh, eligible for and also probably interested in at the same time. And like you said, also saves time for the employers too. Exactly. And there's also like a mismatch between like the job description that HR within the company writes, and then the actual thing that you'll be doing on a day-to-day basis. Like, uh. so, so we think that the whole process of hiring PhDs just actually needs to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, neat. I'm, I'm wondering when you're involved with that, how does that make you feel to be able to, because like, you know, Business is a lot like science, that you're testing different ideas and reiterating, coming back with their different hypotheses, trying to answer them. How does it feel when it's kind of unbounded and at your own pace? It feels a lot like swimming in the ocean and you can't see the shore. (laughs) So it's like really scary, but also it's really exciting because you can go anywhere, you can build anything, you know, with, with reasonable amount of time. Um, But it's also really exciting because um, you're building things for people to use uh, like almost immediately, which is really, really cool. And like my greatest hope is that everything that I build results in people looking, you know, being able to use something and being like, that made my life easier. Even if it's just this much easier, like that's just going to make me feel so happy and so good. Because like, I just, I think like I look around the world and all I see is problems and really bad. So I'm, I'm really, really, really hopeful that, um, you know, me and the people I work with can make it less bad. <laughs> just, just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were mentioning before wanting to give back. And I think a lot of individuals in the science realm may think like addressing the leaky pipeline, which is definitely one way. Outreach is one way. But, you know, if you're going to excel in also matching people up with more satisfying jobs, increasing their efficiency and quality of life, that's another way you can give back. Exactly, exactly. And I I also just have so many friends, like, you know, personal friends that um, I went through grad school with who it's, you know, like, depending on their advisor, had a really hard time looking for jobs. Because, you know, you can have advisors that are like, you know, if you say that you don't want to be a tenure track, they can be really like retaliatory. And it's just, it, it sucks. It's just really sad. And I, you know, and I really wanted to do something for them. Um, and, you know, I was, and I always love helping my friends find jobs. Um, like if, if I see a job posting and I have them in mind, I'll send it to them immediately. But being able to do that on a really large scale is really important to me because I think everybody, you know, I, I really just want everybody to be able to like live their dream. And I am so sad when I see grad school crushing the dreams out of people because it happens all the time and that's not okay. So I, I don't want people's dreams to be crushed. You can still have your dreams, I promise. <laughs> well, speaking of dreams, like I'm gonna transition to maybe a few open-ended questions before we get to our game. It, like the business is really fun to dream because you can go as you know far as you possibly want, and for people who are really curious, like you can you can get a lot of stimulation. Um, I'm curious because you've worked in so many different backgrounds. Do you feel like you will always continually wander into different backgrounds and different subjects, or do you feel like you might eventually get one focus? Oh, I hope I study everything. Like, <laughs> I love, I mean, I love everything. I love studying everything. Like I like, 
you know, I've, I've always had an interest in neuroscience. Um, I have a really big interest in like uh, intelligent systems, um, you know, thinking about the brain. Um, I I, I mean, I love everything. I've uh, fallen in love with every science and I and, and not not just like every um, physical science, but every, um, you know, social sciences and what's considered like the soft sciences, you know, the, the, not my term. But um, like I, I really love all those subjects and I think they're really fascinating. So I really hope I get to have a chance to at least dip my toes into everything, which would be really cool. And now the wrapping up, what is something that you're really looking forward to? Oh, I have so many things to look forward to. Oh, gosh. Okay, you have to pick near term, medium term, or long term. Let's say because it is wintertime, um, and you're right, right now in Cincinnati, but you are in Wisconsin, which sometimes is hard to deal with in wintertime. Let's go near term. Near term. I'm very excited for when it warms up again, um, but I'm also really excited for um, watching this, uh, watching Profound grow, because uh, we're going to add uh, a lot to our company. But I'm also really excited for my research projects. Um, I'm really excited to see what happens with uh, interactions between proteins and viruses and their hosts. Um, but I'm also really excited for a glass blowing class that we signed up for um, next month. So that'll be really cool. <laughs> Have you ever done that before? Nope. Me neither. It, sound, it always seems really cool and that'll probably be warm. Exactly. And I thought, what a perfect wintertime activity. <laughs> yes. All right. So I have I've picked um, what I think is an interesting improv game for us. If you had to pick a household item, what would you pick as your household item? Oh, um, I would pick the couch. Okay, and then a food item. French fries. And then a beverage. So this is one of my favorite things in the world, the random sentence generator. So my goal here is because in the past, you have taken things that may seem chaotic, like trying to define what is alive or not, or big data, um, trying to figure out how stars behave. You've taken these big chaotic things and tried to make them more sensible and tangible. So my idea is to take also random chaotic things, like random sentences, and then get to something that is really mundane and understandable. So with your suggestions, we have completed the really mundane things, but it's your and my job in conversation to go from these random sentences to their matching mundane sentences somehow. Okay. <laughs> we have to go from our first random sentence to our mundane outcome. Our first random sentence is... The crowd yells and screams for more memes. And we have to get through, I just bought a couch on my credit card. <laughs> and I can start and we can be creative of how we intertwine these things together. Um, but we do have to say both of these sentences at some point. Okay. So, yeah, I can start. 
I was hanging out with my parents, you know, it's where I'm right now. And my dad mentioned after coming home from work, he had a coworker say, the crowd yells and screams for more memes all the time at concerts he goes to. And my dad is, doesn't really enjoy going to the concerts because he's a security guard for them. So he had to get away from the crowd as fast as possible. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, our dad, I, I think. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, he's not much of a crowd person, even though he's a security guard. He does it because he has to. Um, he's always, they're always screaming for more memes. And he's like, you know, I just want some of my silence. But he usually, to edge away and get away from the anxiousness of the crowd, will buy things online and not just any things though they have to be fairly large purchases um because he's got the fanciest kind of credit card with no maximum limit um with his amazing security guard job (laughs) (laughs) yeah our dad is so cool i'm so proud of him and one of you know he he bought a lot of kitchen appliances a couple months ago I heard he was in the market for something new in the living room. I'm excited to see what it is. Yes. I'm also very excited to see what it is because last time he bought something with a credit card, it was not just one TV, but five TVs stacked together (laughs) to form one giant TV. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, is that entertainment system off the hook. I'd love going to that. And I'm, I'm going to try to do something like that too. Um, first, buying a couch on my credit card. And, you know, I was excited to share with you, I just bought a couch on my credit card. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> okay. And I feel like now that we've got some practice, maybe the second one will be even, even better. Um, our random sentence is, it had been 16 days since the zombies first attacked. And we have to get to, and that's why I always eat French fries with my spaghetti. <laughs> Perfect. If you want, I can start again, or you can feel free to set the stage too. We all thought that 2022 was going to be so much better than 2021. But so far, it is January 16th, and it has been 16 days since the zombies first attacked. Alyssa and I were fortunately in a really sturdy house when the zombies attacked and then they did not get us. But we survived basically on canned beans, evaporated milk, and the bit of olive oil we could find in the neighborhood of our house. Yep. And luckily our house is 20 stories tall and we live at the very top. So... They can't get to us, but that also means that we have a really hard time leaving the house any at any point in time. Very difficult to climb all those stairs because the elevators don't work. It's the end of the world. It's very true. So we are always looking for, I mean, dry goods in a zombie apocalypse are worth so much. And, you know, we've been experimenting with other cooking because after 16 days of canned beans, you do get tired of canned beans. Um, And with that extra olive oil, we've been experimenting with frying things, too. Mm -hmm. 
And it's actually quite easy to fry things um, because, you know, along with the zombie apocalypse, you also get a lot of things like um, grenades and bombs and stuff like that. They're usually just flying through the air and, you know, you can re just reach out your window and kind of like grab something. Um, and it's pretty easy to grab a bomb and then you throw it in the pan and it and immediately flash cooks something. It's great. Yeah. And when you're in the zombie apocalypse, you got to go for the lighter calorie foods too. You want the flash fried and not the deep fried prolonged for every, you know, minutes and minutes just soaking up all that oil. Um, when I'm eating my grenade flash fried French fries, um, trademark, I, <laughs> I just feel on top of the world after that. And, and, and another cool trick is we realize that you don't even have to have like the, the pre-frozen bag of fries. You can just take a potato, throw a grenade at it, and it becomes French fries because it's exploded and cooked. It's so good. <laughs> and it's so convenient. And this is, you know, listeners, why you're tuning in to Alyssa and Ben's Zombie Apocalypse podcast um, for these quick and easy recipes. So... You can have your French fries with anything you want, possibly spaghetti. Uh, but with this patented flash grenade French fry technique, it's it's actually why I always eat French fries with spaghetti. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> All right. We did it. Um, I don't know if that's any representation of your research from chaotic to something mundane. But, you know, that's what I came up with. Fantastic. I think we came up with some really good stories. I think so too. <laughs> and really, you know, just as, you know, a, a fair warning to listeners, maybe don't throw grenades at potatoes. Um, just in case, don't sue us for, for no, that. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it's not worth your time. Probably not the best of ideas. <laughs> yeah, leave it to the experts. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Alyssa, it's been a blast having you on the podcast. Um, I, I've met you before, but it was really nice to hear more details about your life. And I hope this was fun, and I'm excited to work with you in the future. Great. Thank you so much. This was a blast uh, for me as well. So I loved it, and I hope we blast off into an awesome weekend. <laughs> <laughs> with or without potatoes and grenades. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. Who would have thought one person could study so much and yet still suggest bombing as a means to cook your food? But if the past three years doesn't feel like we've been trying to throw bombs in the hopes to cook our food, I don't know what does. Don't forget about your chance to win Brene Brown's newest book, Atlas of the Heart. Find us on Twitter at Deeper Than Data and follow us to make sure you get the upcoming details to enter the contest for a chance to win her book and more. Also, share the podcast with friends. Use the share button on your podcast player right now to possibly change someone's day. And who knows, maybe their life. This is a pretty good podcast, if I have to say. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Marketing by Jeff and Lorty and editing by Julian Depp. But at the last piece, but at the last, if, <laughs> but, but, find us on Twitter at Deeper Than Data. Find us on Twitter at, uh, find us, find us. <laughs>